Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles. Uh, my association with Tindo goes back almost 40 years. I've lived through all the morphs from Spadina to Ballyconner and now to Bayview. I just want you to know I'm very glad to be here with you this morning on what I understand is your first official chapel in this sanctuary. People have journeys, so do institutions. So, um, I want to talk to you this morning. Let me give you the title of, these talk, of this talk in case it isn't evident by the time I'm done. You can at least remember what it was supposed to be. It's entitled, Facing Up to God, Some Personal Musings on Jacob the Wimp and Jacob with the Limp. Let me start by answering two questions. First of all, why am I attracted to Genesis? And then secondly, why am I drawn to Jacob? And let me start with another comment. I think it would be a good spiritual exercise sometime for all of us to walk through the canon of Holy Scripture. I haven't done this, I'm just suggesting you do it. And to assign to each of the books of the Bible a subtitle that could be attached to the primary title with which we're very familiar. So let's start with Genesis. What do I propose for the book of Genesis? How about this one? How dysfunctional can one be and still be a patriarch? So let me proceed from that to answering my first question. Why am I attracted to Genesis? Well, because Genesis does not censor human dysfunctionality or depravity, which occurs in its lowest forms all through the book. The serious flaws of the stars are neither hidden nor glossed over. One can only imagine what Dr. Phil would say to the patriarchs and their families. It would keep him going and us glued to the set for weeks. I don't know how many of you watch Dr. Phil or want to own that in public, but I'm going to say at times I'm a passionate watcher of Dr. Phil. Why? Because I like the way he plows through depravity. Secondly, there's another reason I'm drawn to Genesis. The Genesis stories often play out over generations. You've got to read a lot of Genesis at one time to really get the plot or to see how the particular sin or the particular virtue plays out. It's transgenerational reading. And there's a lot of very raw reality in Genesis. Someone has well said, better to read it in the King James Version so you can't understand what is going on. It's X-rated stuff. And what's even more disturbing is we can't really figure out at times where God is in the plot. The narration goes on, the story is told. We see people change, but very incrementally. And sometimes the raw reality doesn't get addressed until the next generation. And sometimes it doesn't get addressed at all. That's why I like Genesis. It's a very real book. Now what about Jacob? Why am I drawn particularly to Jacob? Because he is one of Genesis' most compelling characters. We know more in terms of psychological data about Jacob than any other character in the Bible. We can trace him from his prenatal race down the birth canal right to a few moments before he dies when he has a near-death vision and prophesies all of those things about his sons. That's a lot of psychological ter territory for those of you who like to exegete the human soul. I think they call that psychology. The other thing about Jacob, he's not very impressive. 
He's not an extraordinary human being cut out for patriarch status. You could well get tired asking Jacob, what are you going to be when you grow up? Because he takes such a long time to grow up. In fact, if he was graduating from a local Canaanite high school, I don't think he would have been voted the person most likely to succeed. In fact, in the midst of all of his conniving and impious behavior, you can feel a bit sorry for him. He's a bit on the pathetic side. Jacob and God? As I read the narrative, there doesn't seem to be any early indication that God has any special relationship to Jacob. There's no indication that there's a glorious destiny for him. There is no divine voice speaking to him. There are no dreams and visions coming to him in the night. There is nobody walking up to him and saying, your grandfather is Abraham, your father is Isaac. God must have a wonderful plan for your life. Not Jacob. To the contrary, he is a self-reliant, he's a self-reliant, conniving, stay-in-the-tents kind of man. He's prepared to manipulate the situation in his own direction. And he's not particularly physically strong nor well-positioned in the birth order to make life come out right for him. His name means supplanter or heel catcher. It can also mean follower. But you know what? Jacob doesn't follow anybody because his character doesn't let him do that. I think he's better suited to play in a soap opera entitled As the Patriarchal World Turns. There's nothing at all in the early chapters of his life that will hint at what is to come. So, this morning I take a brief look at two numinous, luminous events in his life that are going to show up on the screen at the right time. You know them. I'm not going to read the lengthy text concerning them. But I want to try to connect these two events in his life story. Perhaps you know, perhaps you don't. I'm here teaching a course on dreams. Some people wonder how I could consume an entire week on that subject when dreams are so short. But I'm doing it. So here are two numinous, luminous experiences in the life of Jacob, the unspectacular wannabe, maybe-to-be patriarch. So the first one, Genesis 28, takes place at Bethel. Most people, when they think of Jacob and this dream experience, they associate it with a ladder. But the textual scholars could say it might be a Mesopotamian ziggurat too. Either way, you have angels on the structure. When does this happen in Jacob's life? He leaves home around midlife. Some people say anywhere from 40 to 70. Can you imagine moving out of your parents' garage when you're 70? And he has to leave home for two reasons. On one hand, because of what he's done, his brother wants to kill him. That's a good reason to leave the home. On the other hand, his father doesn't want him to marry one of the surrounding Hittite women. So he says to his son, you better go to the ancestral homeland and marry somebody there. So he leaves home obeying both his parents. 
Psychologically, where is he? He's at a crossroads in midlife, as many people are. His past is marred by what has gone on in the family. He has no clear plan for the future. He has his father's blessing and a stolen birthright, but not much else. It didn't come with any land. It didn't come with any possessions. It didn't come with any flocks. And he's on a long, lonely trek from Beersheba up to Haran. If you've traveled the unholy holy land, you know that that takes you from the edge of the Negev desert in the south right up to Haran in the southeast part of Turkey. That's a long journey by foot, rather risky in Canaanite times. So he gets tired, the sun is setting, he chooses a place, a place to lie down. I don't think he was looking for a sacred place to have a dream or a vision or some version of a divine ambush. He just was tired and he lay down. Who knows what was going on in his soul? And then this happened. Remember, there is nothing in Jacob's life that earns this. In a sense, it comes from nowhere. He is ambushed on the road. Well, you know, God says to him, I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you land. Everything that he promised to his father and his grandfather, he reiterates the promise to Jacob. Is Jacob really interested in that? I don't think so. He's not yet ready to be a patriarch. Rather, he says, if you can give me some food, if you can give me some clothing, if you can get me back to home safely, um, that's a good thing. Let's make a deal. I'll be a tither. If we're using the language of spiritual formation, I think what we have in this first numinous, luminous experience is not a conversion. We have an awakening. We shouldn't make more of it, even if it's a high-voltage experience. It doesn't get everything out of Jacob. He's not walking the aisle and saying, here I am, just as I am, without one plea. No, Jacob's making a deal. He's always made deals. I might have learned it from his grandfather who made a deal over Sodom. Remember, that dealing was in the family. I would suggest in this first numinous, luminous experience, Jacob is not really facing up to God or God's destiny for him. It's not that. He's got a long way to go yet before he will say, I am ready to do what Yahweh wants me to do. In short, as I said, this is an awakening. It's not a conversion experience. There's no stout-hearted abandonment to the will of God here. He's made a deal. He'll be happy if he has food and clothing, survives whatever is ahead of him, which he doesn't know yet, and if he gets back home safely. That's good enough for him. Though it does say that as a result of this experience, he lifted up his legs and he continued on the journey to spend time with the relatives. Oh, there's sanctification territory. Spend extended time with the family. You'll get sanctified. So let's move the clock forward from this first numinous, luminous experience 20 years later to another one, Jacob and the man. Where's Jacob now? Well, 20 years later, what does he have? He has two wives. That's complicated. The first one, he doesn't love, but she gives him many children. 
The second one, he loves hard time bearing children. He perseveres to get both women in his life and 11 children and some maids as well. Then he has to stay, that's 14 years. Then he has to stay another six years with his treacherous uncle who has tricked him the first time, but then Jacob wins the next round. It's trickster against trickster. Finally, one night, 20 years later, he hears the voice of God again. Get out, go, go back home. So he takes his flocks, he takes his wives, he takes his possessions, and he heads back south. And he comes to the boundary of Edom. And who lives in Edom? It's his brother, Esau. Is Jacob nervous? He certainly is. He's in a different season of life, but he hasn't forgotten, nor has his brother, what he did many years ago. So that sets us up for this second numinous, luminous experience, which is recorded in Genesis 32. Who is the man? This is an all-night wrestling match with the man. I'm not going to say Jacob and the angel, though I know many people talk about it routinely as an encounter between Jacob and the angel. I'm just going to say the man. But the text suggests he's something more than a man. But he fights all night with Jacob and he can't overcome him. So even if this is an angel or a Christophany, whatever you want to call it, he has confined himself to the limits of human strength, so much so that he can't defeat Jacob. I think that Jacob very much knows that he's wrestling with God who can bless, so he demands a blessing. I don't think he would have expected that of an ordinary man. So this is indeed a very mysterious event. But let me suggest to you that before this event happens, you know, the text says that Jacob, he leaves his family and his possessions and his flocks on the side of the wadi, and then he goes alone. It's another experience of aloneness, but it's a different kind of an, al an aloneness this time. You could say that the first aloneness that preceded Bethel was a forced aloneness. Other people made him be alone. This time, he's a different kind of a person. He chooses his aloneness. He knows that he has to deal with his own demons by himself. You could say he's a mature man now. He's gone through an element of transformation. Whatever happened in Laban's house, he grew up. He is stripped of everything. He's now prepared to face God alone. He's no longer the wimp. He realizes he has to face his own demons, earn the right to return home. But he must have wondered at the same time, am I going to survive this? Well, he does. He gets through it. He gets a blessing. And the next day, when he meets Esau, everything is worked out. But reconciliation has its limits. They go in different directions because their lifestyles are very different. But they are reconciled. But in the process, what has Jacob gotten? He has gotten a blessing, according to how you read the Hebrew text, it may not have been a touch in the hip socket. It could have been a touch in a more sensitive place. He also got a name change. His name is changed to Israel, the prevailer. He's no longer the heel grabber. He's the prevailer, which means that he has faced up to God. 
He's now ready to embrace his genealogy, join the patriarchs, and lead the people of God to their divinely chosen destiny. But as you know, if you know the story of Jacob very well, his sufferings are far from over. He does not live a perfect life. If you want to know how his dysfunctionality plays out, just read the story of Joseph when the family sufferings continue on. The same dysfunctional way of parenting that he learned in his home, he passed on to his own children, and they suffered for it. But he's a different kind of a person. So that leads me to my conclusion. I've got four things I want to conclude based on the contemplation of these two numinous, luminous experiences. First of all, who people are is not necessarily a clear indicator of who they can become. Crisis moments can dramatically redefine people for the better or the worse. Frankly, some of my students over the years have shocked me in both directions. I never could have predicted in the season of life in which I knew them, what they would become. You know the beauty about getting older, which I want to say is a bad idea? So we need to collaborate with aging as best as we can. But the thing about getting older is that you can see the link between the cause and the consequence. You can see if you start here and follow a certain trajectory, where that's going to lead. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard that said that life is lived forwards but it's learned backwards. We should never underestimate God, his deep redemptive love for people, and his capacity to intervene in their or our lives for the sake of his purpose. Never underestimate God, even in the most desperate of human circumstances, as was Jacob's. Secondly, none of us is far away from the spiritual world, and God can visit us at any time in a variety of ways in our most extreme, potentially self-destructive circumstances. That ambush at Bethel, Jacob was so ambushed, he got up and he said, I didn't even know that God was in this place. And then he anoints the rock. We can be ambushed at any time by God. But that said, much of the change that will incur in us, that will occur in us in an ordinary fashion, will take seasons of incremental growth. It'll take a long time, and it's a good thing, or we couldn't survive it. And what's more is that the complex circumstances of our lives, some of which are very painful, that we're trying to escape because we don't think God is there, are the very circumstances that are used to change us. Thirdly, our feelings may try to tell us another story, our personal dysfunctions and the very painful, traumatic, and destabilizing events that can befall us in life, either as a result of our own conduct or factors beyond our control, our feelings might tell us they will thwart the will of God in our lives. They will not. They will not. Everything by divine power is redeemable, even if it's not reversible. It's redeemable. Lastly, Security in God is not incompatible with human vulnerabilities which characterize all of us as long as we live. Strong persons are not unmarked by human weakness. Often, their very strength has come from enduring life's harshness, 
with the result that their souls have been seared and they have been left with evident brokenness, though sweetened by grace. In other words, if we live up to God and his desire for us, we can confidently walk with a limp without being a wimp. Thank you.